Welcome to this special edition of Daily Vet Life, where we're bringing you interviews related to presentations from the 2021 AAEP convention. These special editions of Daily Vet Life are brought to you by Zoetis. I'm Kim Brown, editor of Equimanagement. In this episode, we're talking to Amy Johnson, DVM, DACVIM in Large Animal and Neurology. Dr. Johnson is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Neurology and Section Chief, Internal Medicine and Ophthalmology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. At the 2021 AAEP convention, she was part of a table topic on diagnosing the neurologic course in the field, and we want to delve into that topic today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Johnson. Thank you very much for having me here, Kim. Well, this is a really interesting topic to me, and I know a lot of uh, veterinarians and vet techs and vet students are going to find what you have to offer today very interesting. But let's start with, if a client calls with a horse that's exhibiting neurologic signs, what are the first steps that you as an attending veterinarian are going to think about? Well, I guess the first thing would be not to panic. A lot of people are scared of neurologic disease, and sometimes that's just because they're less familiar with working up neurologic cases or they feel like they're hard, but really they can be approached in the same way as many other problems that horses develop. And so um, there are kind of two different categories of these calls. There are the ones where it's really an emergency situation and the veterinary needs to intervene with emergency care and treatment quickly. And there are the other calls where a problem is noted, but it's, it's really not an emergency where minutes count and you have some time to think about the case and get some more information. Um, in both situations, I think it's really wise for the veterinarian to ask for a vaccination history before touching the animal or doing a lot with the animal because obviously rabies is a concern and it may be that the horse is part of your normal patient population and you've vaccinated the horse yourself and so you're very secure in the rabies vaccination history but you should ascertain that for yourself and also consider whether the horse is up to date on vaccinations for some of the other viral encephalitides like West Nile or Eastern equine encephalitis. And that may um, direct your thinking a little bit about the case. And once you have kind of reassured yourself and everybody around that it's unlikely you're going to catch a deadly zoonotic disease from the animal, then I would recommend starting with an exam. And so the way that I teach my students and house officers is the first question you're trying to answer is, is this animal really showing signs of neurologic disease or not? Because we know that there are a lot of other problems that can mimic neurologic disease or be mistaken for neurologic disease. If you have a horse that is lame in multiple limbs, or if you have a systemically sick horse that's acting mentally depressed because they feel so bad or are so sick, people might misinterpret that for neurologic disease. Um, Every year in the spring, really good veterinarians will mistake a horse with, say, Heinlein laminitis for a horse with neurologic disease because the gait can look so similar sometimes. And so, you know, if you have the time to do so, it's wise to start out with 
at least a basic physical exam to make sure that there's no systemic disease or other problem at play that could be confounding your interpretation of the neurologic examination. And then people tend to jump to differentials, like could this be EPM? Could this be Lyme? Is this herpes? Is it rabies? You know, is it any of these things? And before you do that, it is great if you can do as complete a neurologic exam as is possible, given the situation, to try to do what we say, localize the lesion. And the reason that that's important is that different diseases tend to target different areas of the nervous system. And if you have a horse that clearly is showing signs of brainstem or brain disease, then radiographing the neck is probably not going to give you the answer for that case. So the accurate localization of the problem will definitely influence the list of differential diagnoses you come up with, as well as your immediate diagnostic plan and might play into whatever initial treatment you prescribe for the horse. Um, after localizing the problem, you need to consider the differentials for that reason, for that region of the country. And in my region, I, I kind of like where I practice because we see lots of different neurologic diseases. So we get some of the viral encephalitides here, um, you know, including rabies, but West Nile and Eastern. We have other infectious diseases like EPM, um, and even occasionally cases of neurologic Lyme disease. And then we get the non-infectious diseases, you know, various types of trauma to the nervous system, your cervical vertebral stenotic myelopathy or your wobbler, um, and then the degenerative myelopathies or myeloencephalopathies as well, the, the neurodegenerative diseases. And so I have all of these things on my list, depending on, again, the region that we've localized the problem to. There are other areas of the country um, where they hardly ever see Lyme disease because maybe the vectors just aren't there or they don't see very many cases of EPM or botulism is, is quite rare. So there are lots of these problems that are more common in certain geographic areas than others and they influence your list of differentials. And so I guess that was taking us down to creating a differential list, which is probably too specific and exhaustive for this podcast today to talk about the appropriate lists for every type of problem you might see. Um, in terms of diagnostic testing, you're a little bit limited in what you can do on the field. And I guess I should have mentioned in the beginning that safety concerns definitely come into play as well. There are some horses where it's all you can do to examine the horse, let alone do um, radiographs or a spinal tap or anything like that. And there are other facilities where it is quite reasonable to do those types of diagnostic tests on the farm. And so the most important thing is always to think you know, the way that I think about it is human safety first and then horse safety second and equipment safety third. But ideally, all of those things are safe when you're working up these neurologic patients. 
part of the world's leading animal health company with a 70-year legacy, Zoetis Equine is committed to providing horse care products and services that veterinarians and their teams can count on. With trusted vaccines such as Corey-Q and Fluvax Innovator, leading diagnostics like the Staple Lab Stallside SAA blood test and the number one vet-trusted equine sedative, Dermosidan, and a portfolio of regenerative medicine devices that includes ProStride APS, Zoetis is always by your side. Be sure to follow Zoetis Equine on Facebook and Instagram today. So I wanted to back up just a little bit when you were talking about, you know, you've mentioned several times based on the region. And I know that some some diseases, as they hit different parts of the CNS, that they affect different body parts and different ways the horse reacts. And some are unilateral, some are bilateral. So could you maybe just address what you might want to look for when you're talking about, you know, isolating to a region? Sure. So when you're doing this neurolocalization, um, sometimes the clinical signs that the horse is showing are clearly spinal cord. And those would be horses where they may have general proprioceptive ataxia or that loss of coordination in limb movement and some weakness as well, which depending on the type of weakness, whether it looks like upper motor neuron involvement or lower motor neuron involvement, meaning the neurons confined to the spinal cord or those that are innervating the muscles, you can decide where in the spinal cord the problem is. And it always sounds very black and white when you talk about it. Life is really gray and it can be really hard to know if it's just the back legs that are involved or if it's the front legs as well. And that changes your localization because if it's truly just the back legs, you might be thinking about a thoracolumbar problem versus if it's all four legs, you're thinking about a neck problem. Um, most of the time with horses, with, with a few exceptions, trauma and maybe some infections in younger horses, the neck is the most common um, cause of spinal cord disease. So if all you see are signs compatible with spinal cord disease, you're probably thinking about a neck problem. And now there are multiple diseases that can affect the spinal cord in the neck region. And we mentioned already Wobbler syndrome or cervical vertebral stenotic myelopathy. Um, EPM is one of equine protozoal myeloencephalitis is one of those diseases that can do anything it wants. And so it can affect any area of the nervous system, but it's a really important mimicker. So it could be EPM. And then the last one that at least in my patient population I see commonly is EDM, the equine degenerative myeloencephalopathy, which, you know, in some cases is also equine neuroaxonal dystrophy. So for a lot of the horses that come into the hospital that have signs of spinal cord disease, those are my top three differentials. Now, if I'm looking at those horses and I say, gosh, this horse also has some cranial nerve abnormalities, like they have poor tongue tone or difficulty swallowing, or there's some facial paralysis on one side, that shifts my localization. And so the most likely area, if you have both the cranial nerve abnormalities and the signs of spinal cord disease, it moves you up into either brainstem or multifocal disease. And so diseases like 
CDSM or Wobbler syndrome don't cause those cranial nerve abnormalities. So in those cases, you would be much more suspicious of a disease like EPM that can affect multiple areas of the spinal cord and the brain. And so in, in broad strokes, you know, things that are structural, um, like CDSM that are causing spinal cord compression or even abscesses, masses, granulomas, things like that, can often be narrowed down to a single focal area of the nervous system versus infectious diseases that frequently are multifocal or they affect multiple parts of the nervous system. And so when you're looking at the animal, it's harder to pinpoint a singular region. So um, hopefully that answers your question. It did. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that's just so important, especially as you're gaining knowledge and some vets, you know, that have done a lot of this, like you, you can walk out and go, oh, it's this, this and this, whereas it might be a little more difficult if that's not what you're usually dealing with. So I just wanted to make sure and pick your brain on that one a little bit. So, and I'm sorry, you were talking earlier, you were talking about human safety is first, horse safety is second, equipment safety is third. And then you were, you know, starting to talk about maybe what else you would do in your exam or tests. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Yeah. And so that the types of tests that are frequently done on neurologic horses in the farm, I guess, you know, they fall into blood sampling. Maybe um, if you're worried about equine herpes virus, doing nasal swabs for PCR testing, um, radiographs of either the head or the neck. Anything more than that is really difficult to accomplish in the field with the portable systems, Um, not through lack of skill, just lack of power in the machine itself. And then some veterinarians are comfortable doing a spinal tap in the field and others are not. And so it depends a little bit on your previous experience and um, your comfort with the procedure, as well as potentially the assistance that you have, the facilities themselves, whether you can have a well-lit safe area to do a tap or not, if you're in the middle of a muddy field on a Friday night. Um, And so when you're considering these diagnostics, I think the most common tests that people do in the field would be blood tests and you know a lot of people will routinely pull a cbc and a chemistry panel just your screening blood test which is great and give you information on the systemic health of the horse but very rarely do they actually help you identify the neurologic problem because most of the diseases we're talking about don't cause a lot of changes in the peripheral blood as measured by a CBC or a chemistry panel. So there are exceptions to that. If you have a horse that is encephalopathic or showing signs of brain disease, that could be liver failure or kidney failure causing those signs. But for your run-of-the-mill ataxic horses, in all likelihood, the CBC and chem aren't going to help you diagnose that horse. They may give you other valuable information if you're going to put the horse on a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like phenylbutazone or flunixin, butyrbanamine, it might help reassure you that there's no contraindication to using those medications. But in terms of actually diagnosing the problem, you're usually looking for, um, with, with the blood test or even the nasal swab, evidence of exposure to infectious organisms. And that can either be through, like with herpes virus, through PCR tests where you're trying to d- detect genetic material from the virus itself to prove that it's there or 
in diseases like EPM or the rare case of neurologic Lyme disease, you're looking for the body's antibody response to the pathogen. Um, and actually, even West Nile and Eastern, a lot of the tests are for antibody production against the organism. And as I think most people will appreciate, the interpretation of antibody testing is tough. And it's not as easy as getting a yes-no answer. Um, I mean, people, you could interpret it like that, but you would be wrong a lot of the time. And so um, in most cases, if the antibody test is negative, I'll use EPM as an example, because it's probably the one that people are most commonly testing for. If you get a negative result on an EPM blood test, you can feel pretty confident that EPM is not the problem as long as the clinical signs have been there long enough for the horse to mount an antibody response. And so if you had a case where the horse had never been exposed to sarcosis neurona in the past and they were acutely exposed and showed really acute clinical signs and you tested them two or three days after signs developed, it's possible that you're testing them before their immune system has had time to mount this detectable antibody level. So if I have a case where the clinical picture looks like EPM, say there are asymmetric or multifocal signs, and there's a little bit of muscle atrophy and then some facial paralysis on the other side, and I say, hey, this looks like an EPM case, and I do a blood test and it's negative, but the horse had only been showing signs for a couple of days, in all honesty, I would probably start treating that horse for EPM while I was waiting for the blood test to come back and then repeat the blood test maybe 10 to 14 days later and see if they had seroconverted. And if they were positive on that second test, that would be really strong evidence that the horse was um, showing neurologic signs because of EPM because you know that right about the time the science started, the horse was exposed to that organism. So that's the only time in those really acute cases when a negative could be a false negative. Um, but for the most part, if the horse has been showing signs for longer than a week or two and you get a negative result, you can trust that. It's the positive results that are hard to interpret. So in my area of the country, I just looked at this data for my neurologic population. So these are all the horses that came into New Bolton Center for neurologic disease. And 80% of them are positive for antibodies against EPM on blood. But the actual, you know, kind of the horses that ended up having post-mortem confirmation of infection, if I look at our population, it's not more than 12% of my caseload. And this is, again, specifically a neurologic caseload. This isn't a random group of horses. These are horses with neurologic signs that could have EPM. Only about 12% of them do. And so, of course, that means that the other 88% have something else. It's not EPM. Yeah. And so you need to recognize that. And I'm not at all saying that if you have a horse with neurologic signs and you run a blood test and it's positive that you shouldn't treat them for EPM. I think you probably should. If that's the extent of the workup that you're able to do with that horse. But you have to recognize that there's still a fairly good chance that there is something else that's responsible for that horse's disease. And I think that it's 
it very much warrants a conversation with the owner upfront because in my discussions with owners, it seems that a lot of them, when you get that positive blood test back in their mind, it clicks as my horse has EPM. And then when a month or two later, the horse isn't better and they're seeing me for a second opinion. And I say, well, your horse might not have EPM. It may have had something else the whole time. They're really taken aback by that. And occasionally they say, gosh, if I had just, known that initially I would have done a spinal tap so I would have known and not spent $2,000 treating this horse for EPM over the last two months. And now granted what they tell me two months later may not at all be the conversation they had with their vet at the very beginning of the problem. But I do think it's important to have a discussion with owners saying we could do a treatment trial, but you might end up spending a thousand or two thousand dollars and then the horse is not better and we still don't know what what it has in a couple of months so you may want to consider whether you would consider referral at this point to get a more definitive diagnosis so that you at least have the discussion that the owner understands why a spinal tap is necessary for more accurate diagnosis and they have all the information to decide whether they would rather do the treatment trial or they would rather upfront try to pursue more definitive diagnosis. And in the case of EPM, again, that would be collecting spinal fluid and then comparing the antibody level in the spinal fluid to the blood and deciding if it looks like there's evidence of what we would call intrathecal antibody production or antibody production and levels in the spinal fluid that are higher than what we would expect based on the blood level, indicating that the organism is in the nervous system. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's, that's a great tip, not just on the, how to diagnose it, but the conversation to have with the owner to help them make the right decision for themselves and their horse. Right. So, so at what point when you're dealing with a neurologic horse. Do you think I need to isolate this horse? The biosecurity needs to be addressed. Sure. So I think the diseases, at least where I practice, that I worry the most about with neurologic horses, um, we're in a rabies endemic region. So it's not so much that I'm concerned that the horse is going to give rabies to the other horses because that's, you know, it's usually not transferred among herbivores like that. They don't have the same tendency to bite other horses. But I'm very concerned about the potential human exposure because, of course, unlike us, most of the general population is not vaccinated against rabies. And so um, I think about rabies and, you know, a lot of the rabies cases that I've seen, they haven't even started out as neurologic suspects. They presented for lameness or colic or something else, and then they've morphed over time um, into a rabies suspect. So I think about those cases and if I have any concerns or if the rabies vaccination history is poor and I, I can't quite figure it out then I try to limit the number of people interacting with that animal and make sure everybody who does interact is wearing gloves and ideally some kind of face protection to keep any, you know, prevent any chance of the horse's saliva ending up in the mucous membranes of the person. Um, and again, those might be cases where if there's somewhere to isolate them on the farm, that's great. Or maybe they just get referred to a place where you don't have to worry as much about your clients. Um, interacting with the animal. Yeah. The other big concern is the potential for herpes virus outbreaks, that type of contagious disease where there is a real risk of horse to horse spread. And so the things to keep in your mind that might suggest that herpes is 
the problem would certainly be the type of farm situation and if there's a lot of travel, if horses have gone to shows and come back, or if um, there's a lot of in and out horses moving from barn to barn, those that mixing of horses increases the likelihood that and it's that some horse is going to be exposed. Fevers certainly are important to know. And it's not necessarily that the horse that is neurologic is having a fever at the time of your exam, but if anyone in the barn has had fevers recently, it might suggest that there is an infectious virus floating around. Um, if there has been a little outbreak of snotty noses or coughing or other signs of a respiratory infection, because, you know, as listeners know, herpes often causes respiratory signs rather than neurologic signs. Uh, maybe there have been abortions if there are broodmares on the farm, which can be another manifestation of herpes virus infection. And then in terms of the neurologic signs themselves, the things that particularly worry me for EHV1 would be kind of a, a rapidly progressive ataxia that usually starts with the pelvic limbs and then may advance to the thoracic limbs. Um, urine dribbling. So if it's a gelding or a stallion, you know, their penis may even be hanging down and dribbling urine or a mare maybe you have almost an overflow incontinence. They frequently have weak tail or anal tone, which you might notice when you're doing your exam or checking their temperature. So those types of signs, um, fever or these kind of almost ascending ataxia starting in the back legs, progressing to the front legs, the urinary and fecal incontinence potentially would make me nervous about herpes virus and multiple horses in a group as well. You know, if you happen to have more than one horse with neurologic signs, that would worry me for herpes. And uh, at least in Pennsylvania, if you suspect EHV1, it's a disease that's reportable on suspicion. So you don't have to wait for a diagnosis. If you say, oh my gosh, I'm worried that this could be EHV1, your best path forward is to call the state vet immediately and say, hey, I'm worried about EHV1. And then the state vets are excellent at guiding your next move. And maybe it's just to test the horse or maybe it's to quarantine the facility. And the their decision has may depend on the risk of the disease disseminating to other barns and how much movement there is and what type of facility it is. But it's important for me to notify our state vet immediately. So I think that making sure if you're just starting out, you know what your state's rules are and you have that contact information for your state vet, you know the best way to get a hold of them. That's really important. And those are amazing tips. And I really appreciate it. I mean, we could go on and on. I'm so interested in you, you have so much to offer, but I'm going to stop here. And hopefully that will uh, make people curious about going and finding some other things. And especially I loved your last tip. Make sure you know what your state regulations are and how to get in touch with your state vet. I mean, that's just a great tip for every vet that's out there practicing. And Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for joining us today. And a big thanks to Zoetis for sponsoring the podcast. And to our listeners, we have a series of 12 of these podcasts that we're putting on the Daily Vet Life uh, podcast show. And you can also go to equimanagement.com and listen to all of the podcasts on each of the article summaries. And again, thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. Thank you very much for having me.